2020 marked the 60th anniversary of one of the biggest stories of police misconduct Chicago had ever seen, shocking residents and even city officials. Today we're discussing the Summerdale police scandal. I'm Tommy Henry and this is the Chicago History Podcast. Saturday, August 1st, 1959, Chicago Tribune included an interesting story titled Master Thief Tells His Tale, Hours of It. In it, Richard Morrison, age 23, claimed to be the greatest burglar ever to work in Chicago. Work is indeed in quotes. Morrison had been arrested the day before while sleeping on the kitchen floor of a friend's apartment at 4332 North Sacramento. Police also found a 38 revolver with armor-piercing bullets behind a refrigerator. Once Morrison was in police custody, he proudly admitted to committing 150 burglaries during the previous six months, netting $100,000. That's nearly $1 million in today's money. Every theft was a business where he would break into the safes and only take cash. Morrison claimed to have learned about safes from visiting the showrooms of safe manufacturers on Michigan Avenue. I guess that was a thing where he would pretend to be a collector for jukebox operators and learn all he could about the different safes so that he could figure out how to crack them. For as much as Morrison claimed to be the greatest burglar, he admitted he had been arrested 25 times in the last three years, mainly in Chicago, Las Vegas, and Los Angeles, and that he had been arrested along with 24 others in March of that year for passing counterfeit $100 bills. Morrison was quoted as saying, I passed $180,000 worth of the phonies and had $9,000 worth left when I was grabbed. When asked about his choices, Morrison said, I like to gamble, visit the casinos, and play the horses, but I guess I'm all through now. As oddly amusing as that story was, it was not long before Richard Morrison, Richie to some, Dick to others and little burglar Richie to the cops was in the news again, referred to as the babbling burglar. Richard Morrison attended Sen High School on the city's north side and got into trouble young with an arrest record in his teen years that included burglary and petty larceny. By the summer of 1958, allegedly trying to go straight with plans to get married, he was working as a pizza delivery guy in Chicago's 40th Ward when he bumped into a former classmate turned Chicago police officer named Frank Faraci. Faraci greeted his former classmate, and when Morrison asked Officer Faraci how he was doing, Faraci allegedly responded, quote, Better if you would cut us guys in on some of your jobs. You know Al Karras and some other fellows, and we'll go along with the show. After all, we like nice things too, end quote. Richard Morrison appears to have not waited long before diving back into the burglary game with both feet. One night in late July 1958, while drinking with two of the cops, the policeman challenged little burglar Richie to get them a nice set of golf clubs. 
As Morrison recounted later, quote, I was pretty loaded, so I got into my car and drove up to Rogers Park, remembering that about 20% of the newer cars had golf clubs in them, so I started looking for a new one. I did not find any, so I drove up to Evanston, end quote. What Morrison did not know was that Evanston had been hit hard by car burglaries and police had set up a few traps around town. Morrison stumbled into one when he tried to break into a car with clubs in plain sight. As Morrison tried to break into the car, he saw the police closing in and tried to escape. Shots were fired, including shots from one officer who had an old-timey Tommy gun who opened fire with a volley of bullets. Morrison escaped, but police later found his bullet-riddled car and arrested him. Now, reading this account, I thought, wait, they opened fire on the guy with a Tommy gun for trying to steal golf clubs? Looking into police procedures of the day, it was somewhat inexplicably lawful for police to shoot at fleeing felons, even unarmed ones. Sheesh. The first official burglary with the... Summerdale Police happened on October 1st, 1958 at the Western Tire and Auto Store. When the crew found a car blocking the rear of the store, police officer Al Karras simply used his squad car to push it out of the way. Morrison was the first inside with two accomplices, filling three carloads of stolen goods and transporting them to a rented garage. The police then made their way inside, carrying out goods, all while in uniform, and loaded multiple squad cars with their ill-gotten loot. It sounds like the business was picked pretty bare. The corrupt cops had planned to meet up later that morning to divvy up the stolen goods, but were reportedly too tired from loading their squad cars. That night, the crew, including Richie Morrison, met up at Saul Carras' house... The cops began to argue about who should get what, and Morrison finally cooled things down by telling them they could always break into more stores. The original Summerdale cop crew was made up of the following seven. Frank Ferracci, Al Karras, and his twin brother, Sal Karras, Peter Beeftink, good name, Henry Mullia, Alan Brin and Patrick Grork Jr. Later, a cop named Alan Clements joined the crew, making it an even eight police that were partaking in the illegal activities, all from the Summerdale Police Station on Foster Avenue. Over the next nine months, all bets were off. These guys robbed gas stations for cash, furniture stores to steal drapes and furniture their wives requested, and many others. In October of that year, while robbing Stetler's Music Store at 5355 North Clark, Morrison was startled to see a squad car driven by Frank Ferracci pull up and park at a 45-degree angle with his flashers on and a spotlight pointed at the store's front window. Ferracci had been at the 20th District Station when he heard the call of a burglary in progress. Knowing it was Little Burglar Richie, he raced over and blocked the path from detectives in the area, giving Morrison a chance to escape out the back door. Morrison later gave Ferracci the entire $150 he pocketed during the robbery as a thank you. Much like they say there is no honor among thieves... 
According to the following, there is apparently no honor among crooked cops. In one story, little burglar Richie Morrison was riding the back seat of a squad car with officers Faraci and Al Karras planning a burglary independent from the others. When their car passed another squad car driving in the other direction, Faraci saw it was driven by fellow on the take officers Peter Mullia and Henry Beeftink. Mullia and Beeftink made a U-turn to see what their corrupt pals were up to, resulting in a bizarre chase between two police cars. Faraci asked Morrison to lie down in the back seat so the other cops wouldn't see him. As Morrison later shared, quote, We drove up and down alleys and finally wound up driving the wrong way on a one-way street. I jumped out when Faraci slowed down and rolled under a parked car. Just then, the other car with Hank Mullia pulled up behind. Mullia got out and walked over to Faraci and asked Frank, What's going on? We playing games tonight? Tempers began to flare when Mullia exclaimed he saw little Richie in the back of Faraci's car. Faraci told Mullia he was seeing things, and the argument finally ended with Mullia saying, quote, Well, if there's anything going on tonight, we'd like to get in on it. End quote. Not long after this, Richie Morrison traveled west, visiting Las Vegas, California, Texas, and other states, spending counterfeit $100 bills along the way. When he returned to Chicago, he found out the Somerdale police had continued doing burglaries without him, growing more and more bold in their crimes. The corrupt cops even offered Dick Morrison a police uniform to wear while on jobs, but Morrison didn't want to go to the trouble of having to change in and out of the uniform. Morrison also noticed the police weren't picky about their scores. He later related, quote, All these guys were doing anything for a dollar. They were greedy. They went for anything from automobiles parked in the streets to gumball machines. End quote. Local businesses were complaining loudly about all the thefts and the lack of police success in arresting anyone. A joke told that bars and gatherings went like this. A Chicago motorist is pulled over by a squad car late at night. As the cop approaches the car, the driver rolls down his window and asks, What is it to be, a ticket or a stick-up? The Somerdale police crew began demanding more and more of Richie Morrison and his burglary skills, but Morrison started to get a little paranoid, or wise. He became convinced the police were going to kill him to keep him from talking if he was ever arrested. We'll be right back. Are you a Caribbean American? Are you looking for a podcast that truly speaks to your culture and identity? Look no further than Carry On Friends, the ultimate destination for all things Caribbean American, hosted by me, Carrie Ann. Dive deep into topics such as culture, heritage, and everyday life through the unique lens of the Caribbean American experience. You'll walk away feeling more connected to your roots. Follow and listen on Apple Podcasts so you'll never miss an episode of Carry On Friends, the Caribbean American experience. Your Caribbean American community awaits. At the beginning of this episode, I mentioned Morrison was bragging while in police custody about what an amazing thief he was. Well... 
being an amazing thief wasn't going to keep him out of prison, and that is where it appeared he was heading after that latest arrest. Morrison thought his police buddies might figure out a way to keep that from happening, but gradually he came to realize no one was stepping forward. Fearing going back to the state pen, Richie Morrison played the one card he still had. On October 10, 1959, Morrison agreed to meet with Cook County Public Defender Gerald Getty. Getty, who would later become famous for defending mass killer Richard Speck, recalls their first meeting. Quote, I remember when I first met him. He was a cocky little guy, like a banty rooster. He only started a rat on those guys when he felt that they had abandoned him. End quote. Richard Morrison spilled all the details, dates, store names, what was stolen, and then Getty had a team interview the store owners for verification. Getty later said, quote, The information Morrison gave us was the same as what the store owners were telling us. This was no coincidence. End quote. In exchange for the information about the cops, Getty said Morrison, quote, was going to go bye-bye, serving no time, and they would get him out of town and down to Florida, end quote. With the case against the crooked cops coming together quickly, the number of people on the need-to-know list was few, as there was significant risk of the bad cops being tipped off. Only the very top police brass were included in the plans, plans that were carried out by state's attorney, Chief Investigator Paul Newey, who had worked with the Treasury Bureau, the Federal Narcotics Bureau, and the Central Intelligence Agency, all positions that prepared him for what was to come. On January 14, 1968, synchronized teams led by Chief Investigator Newey hit the homes of the eight suspected corrupt cops just after they were sure the men would be asleep, and by 4 a.m. on January 15th, it was over. Eight police officers had been arrested, and four truckloads of stolen goods were seized from those homes. The next morning, State's Attorney Benjamin Adamowski stated, quote, Instead of police protection, people in that Northside area were getting police participation in crimes. If I were police commissioner, I think I would be concerned that similar situations might exist in other police districts, end quote. Newspapers reported that in the Somerdale district, burglaries were up 48% compared with an 11% increase citywide. Many businesses were forced to close due to heavy losses, and others had their insurance premiums canceled or heavily increased. Citizens around the city, especially in the Somerdale area, began relating stories of police misconduct they witnessed but were too afraid to report. Mayor Richard J. Daley, who had been elected in 1955 and re-elected in 1959, was vacationing in Florida and returned to Chicago within days after the arrests. The January 18, 1960 Chicago Tribune reported the mayor said he had the utmost confidence in the ability of Police Commissioner Timothy J. O'Connor and said he had no plans for a major shakeup in the department as a result of the arrests. Less than a week later, O'Connor was out. Just before Christmas in 1960, the babbling burglar Richard Morrison held a news conference to discuss subjects as varied as civic duty 
and threats on his life. Dressed in a brown suit and a maroon tie, Morrison shared with news crews that he had been threatened by fellow inmates and convinced not to walk the streets of Chicago. Morrison went on to say he felt a duty to himself and the community, quote, to have this thing cleared up. I regret starting it, he said. I'm going to get off worse than if I had just pleaded guilty. Morrison also claimed once he cleared up his legal issues in Illinois, he would go straight, perhaps change his name, and maybe get a job in a service station in some small town. On June 26, 1961, the trial for the eight Somerdale crooked cops began with Judge James Parsons presiding. As I do love to point out Chicago first, it should be noted Judge James Benton Parsons was one of the first African-American judges on the criminal court bench and later became the first African-American to serve as a U.S. District Court judge. The jury? All female. The trial lasted over a month with the defense trying to claim that it was the fault of the allegedly corrupt policemen's supervisors for not keeping a closer eye on things. It did not go over well. Sonkaris also claimed that many of the items found in his home were either bought from or given to him by Richard Morrison and that Karras was unaware of Morrison's lengthy arrest record. Special Prosecutor Benjamin Sears, during his closing arguments, summed things up pretty well when he said, quote, Were not these crimes committed in the dark of night when peaceful citizens were asleep in bed and had the right to presume that their lives, their spouses, and yes, even their property were secured by these gentlemen in blue? End quote. All of the Somerdale Eight were convicted and sentenced in August of 1961. Seven of them, including brothers Al Karras and Sal Karras, never served a day of jail time. The Eighth was imprisoned for six months. Some were given fines of between $500 and $1,000. After appeals stretched out for six years, these sentences were quietly overturned. A new post, Superintendent of Police, was created with O.W. Wilson of the Criminology Division of the University of California, hired for the position. According to the ChicagoPolice.org history page, Wilson's many changes included a new and innovative communication center, the reduction of police stations, a fairer promotion process, and an emphasis on motorized patrol over foot patrol. The department's look was also greatly changed under Wilson, with blue and white squad cars replacing the old black and white ones, red Mars lights instead of blue, and the introduction of a checkered hat band, brass name tags, and short-sleeve summer uniform shirts. Wilson also introduced the department's official motto, We Serve and Protect. After all the upheaval in Chicago, Richard Morrison headed south to Florida, where, instead of going straight, was charged with trying to break into a safe at a Walgreens. He was able to elude police, but was picked up later, identified in a lineup, and charged. You can take the burglar out of Chicago, but you can't stop his thieving ways. On March 20, 1963, Richard Morrison was back in Chicago with his friend Jerry Bosett, 
The two had spent the day waiting to be called as witnesses in the trial against two of the former Somerdale policemen. The policemen stood accused of extorting $1,200 from Morrison, threatening to arrest him if he didn't pay up. As Morrison and Bossett left the building, they headed down 26th Street toward Morrison's parked car. When they were approximately 50 feet west of California Avenue, a blue and white 1959 Ford containing three men pulled up. One opened fire with a shotgun. The shotgun blast struck Morrison in the left arm, nearly severing it. The car sped off. Both had helped Morrison back to the criminal courts building. Morrison was brought to the state's attorney's office on the second floor, where two assistant state's attorneys applied a tourniquet. Morrison was transferred to Cook County Hospital, where he received a blood transfusion and taken to surgery to repair his mangled arm. For fans of medical talk, Dr. Nicholas Capos wired together the bone broken in the blast, sutured the radial nerve before putting the arm in a cast. Dr. Capos reported the radial nerve and radial artery were intact, and that if the blast had severed the radial artery, Morrison would have likely bled out almost instantly. During an interview at the hospital the following day, as he lay in a hospital bed in a cast covering the upper half of his body, Morrison appeared undeterred by the attempt on his life. At first, he attributed the shooting to three of the Somerdale policemen, then claimed the shotgun attack was perpetrated by, quote, hired assassins to avenge his testimony, end quote, in 1961. Morrison also said the wound he suffered in the ambush would not stop him from testifying against the two former detectives accused of extorting $1,200 from him. The two former detectives Morrison was to testify against were later cleared by lie detector tests. Police Superintendent Orlando Wilson offered, quote, Morrison had many enemies in the criminal world, end quote. Morrison claimed, other than the police, I don't know anyone who has any hate for me. Richard Morrison is said to have moved to Florida permanently and fallen off the face of the earth or maybe went into witness protection. But according to some digging I did while compiling this episode, I'm pretty sure he did indeed move to Florida, was married twice, never had kids, and lived to the ripe old age of 81. When O.W. Wilson retired in 1967, one of the last things he did was call for the hiring of 500 additional police per year, quote, for the next four to five years, end quote. At that time, the police force numbered 10,500, and Wilson speculated it would have to rise to 13,000 by 1972. For reference, in 1967, there were right around 3.4 million people in Chicago proper, all being policed by 10,500 men. We currently have slightly less than 2.7 million people in the city, with 12,258 sworn police personnel as of June 2021, down from 13,218 two years ago. Less residents, more police, and yet... As for the Somerdale Police Building, it was renamed Foster Police Station and later closed. The area of the 20th District is now handled from a police station built in the early 2000s on Lincoln Avenue north of Foster. 
In 2005, the Griffin Theatre Company of Chicago, which had been performing in the historic Callow Theatre in the Andersonville neighborhood, was looking for a new venue. With the help of a local alderman, they bought the former Somerdale Police Station on Foster Avenue for $1, with plans to refurbish the building and rename it the Griffin Arts Center. This new art center was to open in 2012 with an 80-seat black box theater, followed by a 120-seat main stage theater completed by 2015. After years of trying to raise the funds needed to renovate the property, it was announced in January of 2019 that the Griffin Theater Company was no longer planning on moving into the former police station. As of this writing, the property remains vacant, with a faded banner still on the side trumpeting the future home of the Griffin Arts Center. for listening to today's episode about the Somerdale police scandal. This episode was written, recorded, and edited by me, Tommy Henry. As always, if you have any questions about anything covered today, anything to add or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. I have links to various books related to this episode's subject. If you'd like to learn more, anything ordered through those links, not just the items listed, may earn a small commission for the podcast and help offset production costs at no cost to you. Check out the Chicago History Podcast Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages for articles and pictures related to this episode and past episodes posted throughout the week. The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thanks, Johnny. He can be found at AngelEyesArtJKS on Instagram or via email at AngelEyesArtJKS at gmail.com. I will be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.